Uh, the thing that I want to talk to you about is uh, the practice of fasting. Uh, it's uh, something that has kind of fallen off the radar, actually, in the Western church uh, in particular, but uh, it's very common throughout the world and throughout the history of the church. It's been a very common practice of uh, Christians uh, and of uh, church throughout church history. So some quotes about fasting uh, to kick off from throughout church history. This, is, this comes from the first century, uh, from the Didache, uh, which was a kind of a, a manual for Christian living from the first century. And it says, uh, let not your fast be with the hypocrites, uh, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, in other words, the early church tried to distance itself from what it saw as empty religious fasting, but they still wanted to keep up a meaningful practice of uh, fasting. Um, Epipha- um, Epiphanius was a bishop, Epiphanius, uh, in the 5th century. He was a bishop in Italy, and here's what he says, so uh, some four, 500 years later. Who does not know that the fast of the fourth and sixth days of the week are observed by Christians throughout the world? That's what he says about fasting and Christians in the 5th century. Uh, fast forward some 1,000 year, years and you've got John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, talking about fasting where he says, let us say something about fasting because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it as almost superfluous. But holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. For we practice it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from licentiousness or as preparation for prayers and pious meditations or as a testimony of our humiliation in the presence of God when we are desirous to confess our guilt before him. Uh, So those are some samples of this common practice throughout the church uh, in history. And more recently, um, Paul Miller, uh, in his book that's coming out shortly, he calls it fasting, turbocharging your prayers. Turbocharging your prayers. He gets that idea from from Scripture, actually. So um, if you know the story of Nehemiah, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in chapter 1, he saw that uh, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem was in ruins, the, the walls had been destroyed, and what does he do when he finds out that the people of God, that the house of God is, is destroyed and is struggling? He gets to prayer and to fasting, and that serves as the catalyst for the whole story. We find out later that God gave him a plan at that point for how to rebuild the walls, how to rebuild the kingdom of God. And so it was a launching pad. Uh, It reminds me of the beginning of 1 Samuel 1, if you were here during our Advent series, about Hannah in the temple. What was she doing in the temple? This is a a new move of God in 1 Samuel chapter 1. What, What was she doing? She was fasting and praying. It says, Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And it says elsewhere she wouldn't eat. And this again in 1 Samuel 1 was a launching pad for the coming of the kingdom of God, the greatest kingdom in the history of Israel, the kingdom of David. And and where did it begin for Nehemiah? Where did it begin for Hannah? It began with praying and fasting. And so it seems very clear from the Bible, it's repeated over and over again, that, that the prayer and fasting create a foundation for a new move of the Holy Spirit, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And you see this throughout the scriptures. I just want to show you in Luke four instances of how fasting creates a, and prayer creates a foundation for a new move of the Holy Spirit. And so um, you see it in Luke in, in chapter 2 where we talked about, remember, Anna in the temple. She was in her 80s. And what was she doing in the temple? If you know the story, she was fasting and praying. And then guess who rocked up? Jesus. It was a new move of the Holy Spirit, the greatest move of God in the history of the world. And it began with Anna fasting and praying in the temple. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Uh, That's the first instance. But of course, the most famous instance we know of fasting in the scriptures is is the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Forty days in the wilderness. What was he doing? He was fasting. Uh, we, we see him fasting as, to kick off, to launch his public ministry. He hadn't gone public at this point. And then it says, you know what it says after he'd been fasting and praying in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, verse 14? It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Again, this fasting created a foundation for a powerful move of the Holy Spirit in fasting and prayer. Um, as you know, um, Luke wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, um, and, and most of you will know that his second part of that same story is the book of Acts. It, it's actually one story in the, in the same volume. It's the same author. And so you see Luke, again, pointing out moves of the Holy Spirit that came from prayer and fasting in the book of Acts. Uh, and so... Um, the Apostle Paul, he was first known as Saul. He was on his way to um, persecute some Christians, as you do. In Acts chapter 9, he was knocked off his feet by, by the living Lord Jesus, uh, and, and he, he was turned blind. But do you know what he did? The very first thing that he did after he met Jesus was he spent three days in fasting and prayer. Now, can you think of anyone who God used more outside of the Lord Jesus than the Apostle Paul in the history of the church? And how did he begin his ministry He began his ministry with fasting and prayer. It's there in Acts chapter 9. A mighty move of the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Spirit to do mighty and wonderful things in response to fasting and prayer. But uh, Luke shows us again in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. And this is the fourth instance, just again and again again in Scripture, of God showing how prayer and fasting opens up a breakthrough and a new move of the Holy Spirit. It's there in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. And this was the decision to send Paul and Barnabas off to mission throughout Asia Minor. It was in the church in Antioch, uh, just north of Jerusalem. And it says they were praying and worshipping and fasting. And then the Holy Spirit said to them, while they were fasting and worshipping, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Now, out of this move, this this was the launching pad for Paul's three missionary journeys where he shared the gospel, right? And, And that gave birth to countless churches throughout the Mediterranean, which then gave birth to Paul writing 13 epistles to those churches, which were now included 2,000 years later in a book we call the Bible that is the international bestseller, uh, best-selling book of history by a factor of 10. And it has his 13 letters that he wrote that would never have been written if they were not fasting and praying in that time and the Spirit hadn't said, set them apart. So talk about turbocharging your prayers, right? I mean, I can't put words around the move of the Holy Spirit that came from that time of prayer and fasting. So we see it again and again, God bringing breakthrough. And so I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, I don't know some of you, are you in need of a breakthrough? Do you need a miracle? 
Do we need a miracle as a church here at St. Philip's? Could it be a broken relationship that's been broken for decades? Could it be a broken body or a broken heart or a broken mind that's been like that for decades? Uh, Could it be someone that you know who's far from God, who you long to know, to see to come and know Christ? Perhaps it's a need you have for wisdom in a crucial decision that you're going to be making. Do you need a breakthrough? Do you need a miracle? Do you know about this gift of fasting that God has given you that provides a new move of the Holy Spirit when we take it up for ourselves? I hope by God's grace he may reveal to you what a gift it is that he's given us, the church, called prayer and fasting this morning. Now, the most common thing for people to give up when fasting is, is food, and I recommend that as, as the primary uh, fast uh, uh, fasting practice. But uh, it's not the only thing you can do. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything for the sake of some spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are perfectly legitimate, but which for special reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. So maybe fasting isn't the right way for you, for you to go personally from food, but there's plenty of other things that you can abstain from. Um, it's also important to note uh, that all of the examples that I've given you about fasting are always coupled with prayer. Prayer and fasting go together. Um, Fasting is turbocharging your prayers. Uh, And and we see this actually. um, Fasting is actually for feasting. Um, It doesn't sound right because what are you feasting on? You're not feasting on anything. Well, you're actually feasting on spiritual food, the spirit of God in our midst. And you see this actually through the life of Jesus. So do you know that story where uh, he was with a Samaritan woman by the well in John chapter 4? And, um, and his disciples went off to get something to eat, and he's sitting there. They come back, and they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want something to eat? And, and he says this, John chapter 4, verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He's talking about spiritual food. He's talking about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see it again in, in him being tested in the wilderness when he's been fasting and um, for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says he was tired. He was hungry, right? And what's the first uh, temptation that the devil brings to him while he's hungry, tired and fasting? To turn stone, to turn a stone into bread, right? A good temptation for a guy who's been hungry, not eating for 40 days. But what does Jesus say in response? He says, man does not live on bread alone but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, fasting helps us to feed on the spiritual food of God's presence and power in our life. And what a shame it is for us as a culture that our bellies are so full with other foods and our appetites so full with the things of this world that we miss out on this food that Jesus says you know nothing about. And what was the result for Jesus? He was filled with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to do the works of God in Christ's name as a result of this feeding on Christ. Here's how Sam Storms talks about fasting. He says, fasting is feasting on God, drawing deeply upon his presence, depending wholly upon his power, enjoying his goodness, gazing on his beauty, and trusting him to do for us what we could never remotely expect to do on our own. 
Uh, Richard Foster has written uh, one of the classic works on spiritual disciplines. It's called Celebration of Discipline. It's probably some 40, 50 years old now. Uh, And and this is what he says about our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 9. He says, This is perhaps the most important statement in the New Testament on whether Christians should fast today. He's talking about Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 15 in particular. And so I hope um, you keep that open in front of you as we have a look at Matthew chapter 9 and um, what Richard Foster says, the most important statement in the New Testament on whether Christians should fast today. Um, He's referring to 15, but it begins at verse 14 where the disciples of John the Baptist, so John the Baptist had disciples and they came to uh, Jesus and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples don't fast. So the disciples of John the Baptist have noticed that the disciples of Jesus didn't fast, like the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. And Jesus answers this question with a kind of parable or picture. He says, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? And so from what Jesus asked them, we learn two things from what he's saying. And the first is that fasting in Jesus' day was associated with mourning and grieving and crying and pain. Fasting was an expression of sorrow uh, for suffering or sin or sickness. So that's the first thing we learn. But, But Jesus is saying, that's not what it's like to be with me. That's not, being with me is not a time for sadness or sorrow. And so that leads to the second point, and that is that the Messiah has come and his coming is like the coming of a bridegroom to a wedding feast. So um, I'm sure you've been to a wedding wedding reception. You know you have the wonderful wedding occasion and then you've got the wedding reception uh, after a great celebration. Well, can you imagine being there and the bride and, you know, they get all introduced and and they they get all introduced and you're all celebrating, everyone's happy, you know, the wine's flowing, all the food's there. And uh, and then it's time to sit down and eat and all the guests say... um, can you imagine all the guests just go, well, oh, sorry, we're fasting today. Uh, you, you guys go ahead. No, it's a time for celebration. That J- Jesus is saying the bridegroom is among you. This is a time for celebration, for delight, delight and feasting. Um, but actually what Jesus is making here is an extraordinary claim because several times in the Old Testament, God refers to his people as the bride and he refers to himself as the bridegroom. But what's Jesus doing here? He's referring to his disciples as the bride and he refers to himself as the bridegroom. In other words, he's inferring, he's making himself equal to God, that Jesus is the bridegroom, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been longing and aching would come. Like we sing that great Christmas carol, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm the bridegroom. It's time to celebrate. For thousands of years, you've been longing and aching and desperate for this day. And here I am in your midst. As John Piper says, the absence of fasting among Jesus' disciples was a witness to the presence of God in their midst. 
It wasn't a time for fasting. God is with us, Emmanuel. Then Jesus goes on in verse 15. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus is referring to a time when his disciples will fast sometime in the future. But when is it? When will he be taken away from them? Well, I think the most obvious answer is at the ascension where he, where he ascended into heaven and he was taken away. Can you remember, if you know in John chapter 14, verse six, um, John chapter 14 to 16, he's talking to his disciples about the fact that he's going to go away, that he's going to leave them, and it says they're filled with grief and they're deeply troubled. Jesus, we don't want you to go. They're deeply saddened. This is the bridegroom who's brought them so much joy like they've never known and they don't want him to go. Well, it's true that at that point he says, it's better that I go because then I can send you the Holy Spirit to be in your midst. And that's the promise of John chapter 16. So he's with us by the Spirit. He will be with them by the Holy Spirit. And yet... The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he says, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. Paul's talking to the Philippians and he's like, I would much prefer to be with Jesus than to be with you guys. But you know what? I think I'm going to be with you guys a bit longer because you need me to stick around. Uh, To be with Christ is better by far to be with the bridegroom who is now ascended at the right hand of the Father. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8, We would prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, that's the time for fasting, when he he goes, when he's not with us anymore because of the longing and the ache that we have to be with him. It's a sense of being homesick. And it's the homesickness that's inside everyone who belongs to Jesus because he isn't fully and infinite intimately and beautifully and powerfully with us like he will be on that day. And so that's the reason for fasting, because we want him to be with us now by his spirit. It's something that nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing else can satisfy. The bread of heaven, the living water, and it's the new wine that Jesus talks about. And so we fast because we know nothing in this world can satisfy us the way he can. And he talks about this new wine in in verses 16 and 17. Have a look. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. Otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, what is this new wine and this fresh wine, these fresh wineskins that Jesus is talking about? I think it's he's talking about this new reality that has dawned with the Lord Jesus. This new reality that he is with us. The king has come, the bridegroom is with us. And, and everything that he accomplished while he was on earth. He died for our sins, that he rose again to bring us newness of life, that he poured out his spirit upon us, that even now by his spirit he's at work in his bride, preparing her and beautifying her for that marriage banquet on the last day and that great wedding feast. 
So that's the new wine. It's the presence and power of Jesus in our midst. And he's saying the old wineskins can't contain him. So let me ask, what are the old wineskins that he's talking about? What are these old wineskins? Well, I think in the context of this story, the old wineskins is this old way of fasting, the way that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting and the way that the Pharisees were fasting. So in verse 15, Jesus says, we will fast when the bridegroom is gone. One day they're going to fast when the bridegroom is gone. But at the same time, in verse 17, he's saying, we won't fast like we used to. We won't fast like the Pharisees. We won't fast like the disciples of John the Baptist. This, is, this new wine calls for a new type of fasting. So what's the difference between the new and the old? Listen carefully. Between the old fasting, sorry, the new fasting is based on the fact that the bridegroom has come, whereas the old fasting was based on the hope that he would come. Can I say that again? The new fasting is based on the fact that the Messiah, the bridegroom, has come. The old fasting was based on the hope that he would come. In other words, the coming of Christ makes all the difference because he's once and for all defeated sin. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He's given us his spirit. We've seen the fullness of God in Christ like never before. The bridegroom has come. We've received the fullness of his spirit. I remember how he said last week that when the spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he became the first fruits of the new creation this harvesting term where the the, the first fruits are the same as the rest of the harvest. They just come early and they're the same quality. And Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of the new harvest. In other words, resurrection is not just something that we wait for in the future. Resurrection has already begun 2,000 years ago when Christ was raised from the dead. And by the Spirit, we've been given the first fruits of that resurrection power, the guarantee, the deposit, the down payment. So the fullness that we're longing for and fasting for has already appeared in history. He's already given us the Spirit. Remember I said last week, this is not pie in the Oh, last week, yeah. This is not pie in the sky when you die. This is cake on your plate while you wait. This is not pie in the sky when you die. This is cake on your plate while you wait. We have the first fruits of the Spirit now. And, and, and fasting is about putting aside whatever shadowy um, imitations there are in this world, whatever cakes there are in this world, so that we can feast on the spiritual bread of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We've already tasted the powers of the age to come. We've already tasted this new wine. And and it's because of the new wine of Christ's presence that it's so real and so satisfying that we'd gladly give up physical food if we can just taste one drop of this new wine of God's presence and power through the Holy Spirit. And so the newness of this fasting compared to the old fasting, the intensity comes not because we've never tasted 
and seen that the Lord is good, but because we have tasted the, the, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit and we can't be satisfied with anything else. We must have all that he has for us. And so we give up food physically so that we can feed on him spiritually. So I don't know what the breakthrough is that you're looking for in 2023. I don't know what the miracle is that you're hoping for in 2023. But I hope you can see the gift that God has given us in prayer and fasting for creating a foundation for a new move of the Spirit, a new outpouring of the Spirit, and the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And I think that's something that we need at St. Philip's. And I hope by God's grace that you might find a way to take up this gift and see God move in new ways, in mighty ways, in you and through you, in us and through us, through the mighty power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.